Today's episode of Pivot Points is made possible by listeners like you. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please remember to leave us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our community. This podcast explores the dynamics at play when we make the critical decisions that determine the course of our lives. We all make most decisions on limited information. Sometimes the outcomes are great, other times they're not. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned in the process. I hope this episode gives all of you a new perspective, whether you're currently serving, are a veteran like me, or regardless of background, are just interested in exploring the unique paths my guests have taken and examining their decision-making process. And with that, let's dive in. Eric Leacher, thank you for being here with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, and uh, I'm very excited to do this. So I think the most appropriate way to, to start us off is to kind of give a, a bit of an introduction into you. And I think one of the, you know, the, the place where our stories overlap is with the military and with Booth and your generosity. And so, you know, for those out there who don't know who you are, um, which is probably the majority of my military audience, because they just don't know much about investment banking or the world of finance in general. Um, you know, you went to sh- Chicago Booth back when it was the GSB in, in the 60s and then worked at Lemon Brothers and then Morgan Stanley and then opened your own firm called Gleacher & Company and worked in investment banking and M&A and had a, just a stellar career and then gave back to Booth um, in a couple different ways. Um, to back to the University of Chicago first with, I believe it was your, your donation for the Gleacher Center, which is the downtown campus, which is stellar, right on the Chicago River, absolutely gorgeous. And all the, um, the evening and weekend classes are there. I attended about one a quarter before they, they shut us down for the pandemic. And then you also gave an incredible donation for veterans to attend Booth. Um, and, and with that, I, I guess I'll turn it over to you so you can talk a little bit about um, that donation, what drove you to do it, and um, and you know how you see it, you know benefiting people like me, and then I can talk about it a bit from my perspective as well. Well, I got out of the I was I was uh, discharged from the Marine Corps, and a week later I started at Booth. I was in a hurry. I was uh, twenty six. I was married with a pregnant wife, and uh, I was in a hurry. And I was able to uh, get into uh, the GSB, Graduate School of Business, as it was known back then. And uh, I extended for a month uh, in the Marine Corps because I had nothing else to do, and I wanted to have, I wanted to earn every penny I could uh, because. Uh, starting out, I was going to try to put myself through Booth, and it was going to be expensive. So a week later, we uh, rolled in. It was it was in early June, and the campus was basically deserted. Uh, it was still on the quarter system as it is now, and it was it was either right when the vacation started uh, between the 
spring and summer quarters or just before and uh, the campus was really deserted and was able to find the uh, business school building and uh, parked on the street had a, uh, a Chevy Malibu which I bought just before I was discharged for $2,750 and a trailer with a few belongings that uh, we towed up from Camp Lejeune and it was one light on in the business school building and we went down the corridor and there was a man sitting at his desk and there was a picture on the wall and believe it or not it was uh, of a, a Marine Corps general General Wainwright who was a I believe he was a Medal of Honor winner in the Pacific during the Second World War and the guy sitting behind the desk was the Dean of Students, who was also a former Marine. So we, I was just overwhelmed by the, un, you know, the likelihood was zero that the first person I would meet would be a former Marine at the University of Chicago, but that was it. And we hit it off instantly, like you would expect. And uh, so my wife and I stayed and we spoke with Jeff Metcalf for about a half an hour I told him I was a little bit apprehensive because I hadn't been in school in, for three and a half years. And when I was in school, I was a gentleman student at Northwestern, you know, and I was there on a golf scholarship. And uh, it was a, 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 an experience that was more social and athletic and, and academic for me. Uh, and I said, I know this is tough school and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just a little nervous. And he said, he said, don't worry about it. You're going to do great, and I'm going to take care of you. Those were his exact words. And, uh, and you know, he did. He was a great guy, and he's a famous guy. And he may, you all listening to this who are current students or just have just graduated, you may have not heard much about him, but ask around a little bit because he was an incredible man and did a tremendous amount for lots of people. So that was my beginning at the GSB. Um, I went there because uh, I had to make a living and I didn't know anything about business. My father is a construction engineer, so he, we, we, there was no business background in my house. And it was a great experience at the GSB. Uh, I learned that finance was the most interesting uh, aspect of what, what was taught at the school, and it seemed like a good fit to me. And uh, I ended up going to Wall Street and having a great career. And um, I, felt very, I felt very lucky. Uh, I graduated in 1967. And uh, in 1995 was when I gave uh, $15 million so that the school could build a downtown headquarters in Chicago, something they never really had before. And uh, when they came and asked me if I would help, I talked to one of my older children, and she said, absolutely, you know, this is a great thing. Uh, and uh, so I was happy to do it, and I felt good about it because I was, I had been fortunate, fortunate 
ultimately uh, in the right place and had done well. And the idea of giving back to those who helped me was very important in my mind. And so that's, that's how all that started. And then uh, uh, later on, um, a fellow named Mike Harper, uh, the Harper Center, you guys all know about that. Uh, he built up a company called ConAgra um, from a very uh, small starting base. It was when he took the job as the CEO there, it had a market value of $10 million. When he retired, it was $15 billion. And uh, I was with him every inch of the way. And uh, we became partners, close friends, and two very successful guys working together. And so when he retired, he gave $25 million that provided the equity to build the Harper Center. And uh, both of us uh, have endowed various professorships and so the whole market value of the package that we put together for Booth is about $75 million. And I'm very proud of that. And uh, uh, it's, done, it's done very well for Booth. And I think most important of all is the Veterans Scholarship Fund. Uh, with the Harper Foundation put in $10 million, as did I. So there's $20 million to augment the GI Bill and help American veterans uh, go to a great business school and hopefully become leaders in the economy uh, or in government or whatever course uh, of activity they choose to pursue. And what was the impetus for, for starting that fund? Because you began that, and the Harper donation is super generous, but that was largely due to your relationship with the Harper family, correct? It was, yes. I, I, it was one phone call to uh, his son, who's also named Mike Harper, who's one of the top three or four guys at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, very, a great guy, a great doctor. I called him up. He got it right away. He said, let's do it. And uh, it was that easy. Um, so years before that, uh, a, a former Marine and very close friend of mine uh, called me up one time, and he said he was uh, there was a, a general named Smith who had a son who was a Navy SEAL. He'd been a Navy SEAL for nine years. He was 30. And he, the one thing he wanted to do was to go to the University of Chicago and study finance. His name is Nathan Smith. And so I called the dean, it was uh, Ted Snyder at the time, and I said, you know, here's a, here's a guy who went to the Naval Academy. His grades are okay, test scores are okay. But this guy's had an experience and has got leadership skills that would, would no one at the, at the school would, would be comparable. And I said, you ought to take a chance on guys like this, even if their scores aren't as high as you want, because they'll, they'll get it done and uh, you know, they'll be successful in life. And he says, well, he says, yeah, I can see that. 
But I, he said, what I like is the fact that they would change the dynamic in the classroom. So he was the first one. And the second one uh, was a uh, Marine. And uh, uh, it went on from there. And in, in each succeeding case, uh, the people did spectacularly well. And in the university wanted more and and uh, so over the years it's grown and right now the last number they gave me there were 99 uh, veterans at, in the various programs at Booth uh, not just the, the full-time program but all I think there are five programs in total so 99 and the veteran scholarship fund as I said augments the GI Bill and I'm hopeful that we can raise more money for that scholarship fund. I'm hopeful that some of the veterans who benefited from it when they were out in the world, um, and some of them will no doubt be extremely successful, that they will also augment that and contribute to it and, uh, and so we can, we can make it easy. We can reward the guys and gals who've gone out and, and, uh, and uh, defended our country and, and served. Uh, we could give them, you know, a, the outstanding business education and let them go on with the next phase in their lives. So to me, it's uh, probably the most worthwhile thing that I've done. Well, I just personally want to say thank you. Uh, I benefited from your generosity uh, and, you know, make a personal promise to you that I'm going to do everything I can to exceed and excel in life and, and also give back. Um, and, and a thank you in general from the Armed Forces Group at the University of Chicago. I know my peers, the class above me, everyone that benefited from your generosity is, is eternally grateful. Um, and so you know, I, I didn't know I'd have this opportunity to thank, thank you in person, um, but I do want to take a moment to just say thank you and, and appreciate what you've done. That generosity is life-changing, um, and it makes a difference. So from all of us thank you well thank you i appreciate it. thank you for your service thank you for yours and thanks for your support as well um and speaking to that point a bit before we dive more into your story and and the book risk reward, reward repeat um the vet value you bring up there i i know i've seen it from my perspective but from someone who's been at the top of the world in business for 40 plus years do you see that vet value and the value that veterans bring to the workplace out in the world once, you know, you've seen veterans who come through Booth and other top schools make it on Wall Street and in business, are you able to see their value displayed as well? All the time. And I think it's a, it's a tremendous plus. If you've, if you've served and, you've, and you've, you've gone to a top business school, I think you have an edge in terms of being selected. You know when you when you look for a job, so I see it all the time. You know the it's it's uh, you you've already been uh, in leadership positions, you know, in serious leadership positions in the in the military, and uh, when you go out into into business, what you learned, uh, the experiences you've had, even if it's subconscious, will affect the way you behave. And uh, it's a plus. And so I think people who are hiring, you know, value the military service a lot. 
And is there anything, be remiss if I didn't ask if there's any, you know, common mistake that you see vets make uh, in business that, that you don't see other folks make, or if it's, if, if there's really not something that you can pin down just so that people can have that front of mind or as a skill to work on. I don't I know. I don't see that at all. The, okay. the problem is, is this, you don't see enough of them. You know, the, the, uh, uh, there, there's a scarcity value and, uh, hopefully programs like we have at Booth will solve some of that because it'll attract more veterans to spend a year and a half or two years and get an MBA and, and not not have to build up a portfolio of loans that they have to they have to struggle <clears throat> struggle with. No, exactly. And I don't know if there is another scholarship like the one that Booth has due to your generosity at any other top business school. Um, you know, I talked to pretty much most of the vets who are applying to business schools, the admissions mentor, we had a whole team who helped. Um, but what I what I found was that not everybody was aware that if you have full 911 GI Bill, Booth is free due to your generosity. And if you don't have full 911 GI Bill, you can still receive a substantial scholarship due to the generosity of both you and the Harper Family Foundation. And so regardless of where you are as a veteran, the debt that you're going to graduate from business school with out of Chicago Booth is much less than than most other schools. Well, I hope this podcast uh, serves veterans in informing them, you know, that uh, opportunities like this exist. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving from that conversation kind of to the book, uh, Risk, Reward, Repeat, um, it's really, really good. I I enjoyed reading it. Um, I like your writing style. Uh, it's It's a fairly quick read. And you're, you're humble while still accurately describing, you know, the great things you're able to accomplish. Um, what was the impetus for writing it? And um, from there, I'd kind of like to think through what your North Star, your guiding motivations were uh, throughout life. And we talked a bit about this before the podcast, but the purpose of this is to try to dive into your decision-making process and try to get an idea of how you made the, the critical decisions that kind of guided your path throughout life um, in an effort to give those frameworks to people who are considering getting out of the military today um, or graduating business school or getting ready to start and thinking about a career in finance versus a career in consulting or, or tech or, or any other field. Well, speaking of the North, North Star, I've, I've gotten a lot of really uh, humbling emails and letters from individuals all over the world who've read this book. I must say, it's uh, I didn't really know what to expect when I decided to publish it. Um, it's hard. If you, if you write something or if you give a speech, you, you really can't feel exactly how it's coming across while you're doing it. So it, I didn't know. Uh, you know, I hoped it was. It would. I hoped it would satisfy my objectives, but I sure. I certainly didn't. But this guy, who I did, who I've never met, a very prominent guy. He said. He said, "Well, it's clear that your north star is your service in the Marine Corps." And I believe he's absolutely right. Uh, and and uh, I'll tell you why. So, and and. A lot of your listeners will have gone through something like this, and maybe you did yourself. 
So when I turned up at OCS, uh, I had never really done anything significant in my life. I was a really good athlete. I was, you know, national level golfer, but that's that's just play. That that doesn't, you know, that's not the tough stuff. So we get there. The first thing they tell us is that they're going to graduate half of the class. Nobody knew that. That's you figure the guys who were signing up for the Marine Corps, they wouldn't be signing up if they didn't think they could make it. And now you, the odds are 50-50. Uh, and it was tough. And, they, and, and, and they, they, we had 320 candidates, graduated uh, 160. We had uh, eight platoons of 40, graduated eight platoons of 20. So this was military precision. I mean, this is this is the essence, right? Of the they weren't lying, huh? No, they did by the numbers. But then, after officers' basic school, you get assigned. You uh, most people who go into Marine Corps want to be in the infantry, and uh, so I was fortunate enough to be selected. And when you show up to take over your platoon in a fleet marine force, you still haven't really done much. You know, you went through officer candidate school, mostly physical. You go through officer basic school, not that difficult, you learn some tactics, but I don't remember any discussion, any instruction on leadership. I really don't. There, it seems to me there must have been something, but I can't remember it if there, if there was. So all of a sudden you're taking over a rifle platoon, you got 45 guys, the one I was, the one I got had been, uh, they had been deployed offshore of Cuba in the Cuban Missile Crisis the year before. Half, and half the platoon turned over, the other half had been there. They were all highly trained. Uh, luckily, no one landed in Cuba because the terrain was unbelievable. It was very mountainous and cliffs, and it wasn't like a beach, uh, you know, a flat beach stretching out. It was very difficult. Uh, my platoon sergeant was a distinguished combat veteran. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you're a 23-year-old guy, and you're saying, okay, this is the real deal. How, what do I do to make this work? And uh, you got to figure it out, and you got to figure it out fast. And so I learned a lot of things uh, instinctively and a lot of things by doing. You know, one thing is you need flawless integrity. You never ever are not totally truthful with the troops. They're smart. They most of the most of the most of the guys in the platoon had not graduated from high school. They came from the inner city. This was East Coast, you know, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. But I found that they were smart guys and they're they were intuitive. And uh, they had a lot of ability. And, and so you have to establish yourself as, a, as an absolute truth teller so they know where they are at all times. You have to lead by example. You ask them to do something, you should be able to do it as well or better. Uh, you, uh, you, you know, you, 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 you pursue excellence. You want them to be the best at what you're trying to do. And, and, and these are qualities that you learn because you have to learn. It's the only way you can operate. 
there's no other way around it. And if you do that, you're going to gain their respect. They, they obviously think you're smart because you went to college and they, they can't quite relate to that. But it's all these other things that really count. And I was successful as a platoon commander uh, because I, I was able to identify these values and adhere to them. And I did that for, I've done that for the rest of my life. When I, when I, when I was uh, in business and people working for me and there was a lot of pressure and there was tremendous competition to get ahead and to be the best, uh, I always told people exactly where they stood. There was no finessing. There was, it was just, here's where you stand. Here's, here's how you compare to others. Here's what you're doing well. Here's where you could improve. But it was, you know, no BS. And it's flawless integrity. They knew that they were getting a straight scoop and they could figure out what they had to do from there. When, uh, when, when things got busy, uh, and in M&A, sometimes you're really working almost full out, and you're working until four in the morning every night for a week or ten days. I was always the last one to leave and the first one back in the morning. And you, you know, you lead by example. Uh, I always did my homework. Uh, I I knew what was going on. I knew as much as the chief financial officer of the client, so we could make sure that. We really understood where things stood and we weren't getting uh, manipulated in any way, shape, or form. And uh, again, all this stuff goes back to dealing you know, with the troops in the United States Marine Corps. So that, that's definitely my North Star and that's the way I've treated my kids. Uh, I have six and my wife uh, has another one and I've always treated them pretty much like adults because I told them where they stood and where they had to improve and what they couldn't do. And uh, knock on wood, they're all self-sufficient at this moment doing well. So, yeah, you know, I, that's, that's my North Star. Understood. And, and going to the Marines a bit, um, you know, respect is hard, hard earned and easily lost. And to having flawless integrity and telling the troops how it is on a regular basis is necessary and trying to lead by example and be as good or better, which you're not going to be when showing up out the door, right? Somebody's going to be a better shot than you the day you show up. Uh, somebody might be faster than you the day you show up, but you always try to be the best and work to improve. Do you feel like there was a moment when you gained the respect of your platoon? Um, you know, you come in the door, at least the way I felt was I came in the door and I was at, I was at even. Like I wasn't in the hole, and I, but I wasn't up here yet. Sure, I had the respect of the position, but they have to respect you as a, as a leader, as an individual. And that took a little bit of time, right, to earn their respect through a consistent display of leadership, integrity, and a pursuit of excellence. Uh, did you feel the same way? And is there a moment that you can remember where you, you kind of won over your platoon? Or is that just something that kind of happened progressively over time? It happened progressively with me. There, there was never a moment where I felt at risk. I will say that. But it, it's, it was progressive because you, get, you had to get to know them. And, uh, you know, there was a time where 
my platoon, my platoon sergeant and I, I could, I could tell that he liked me and he respected me, and he was an awesome guy. So I, you know, I can kind of remember that. Um, you know, little things like, like one of the things that uh, that I'm, I'll brag about is that you talk about shooting. So I, I when I went through. Uh, I, when I when I went through the rifle range procedures when I was at basic school, I, I shot marksman, which is kind of embarrassing because it's you know it's it's like the lowest it's the lowest score to really get a shooting badge and uh, and so when I so when I had the platoon, I said to, I said to myself, this is not going to work, and I am going to you know I'm going to shoot higher than anybody in the platoon. That was my goal. And by that time, I was pretty tight with the platoon. And, you know, it was the same deal. You spend three weeks at the range, and you, you really work on all the positions. And if you focus, you can, you can get to be a better shot. It's an advantage not to be uh, some kid who grew up out in the boondocks and hunted all the time. It's almost better to never shot. So and I and we made a lot of bets. We were betting cases of beer, you know, with troops and all that. And I, and I did it. I shot high expert, you know, with the with the M14, the highest score, and I shot uh, expert with a 45 pistol, which is even harder. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's the way that's the way I felt about as 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 I said, trying to lead by example. In that case, it worked. And in, in backing up from the Marine Corps a little bit, I I feel like your your pursuit of excellence started before that. You like you talk about, you're an excellent golfer. From the time you were you were young, twelve or thirteen, right? I started when I was twelve, yeah. Um, and then played through college. W- was there a moment where it clicked for you that you wanted to be excellent at golf? In the book, you talk about how you were pretty good right off the bat, um, and within I think a year, you, you like won a championship for your age group. Um, was there a moment where that where that became was that already a part of your personality, a desire to excel at anything you did? Or was golf the first time where you saw that? Well, golf was definitely the first time. Before that, I mean, I was I was a reasonably good baseball player, but 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 I you know that's little league stuff. And the golf you know got more important as as I got older. Then my first year of college, we won the national championship when I was at Western Illinois, the NAIA. Uh, so I was that was that was a big achievement. But yeah, the golf I, I worked hard at the golf because I liked it. Uh, but the golf was a game, and when you're in the Marine Corps with uh, with 45 guys who are who are working with you, it's it's a very different experience. So, and I, I bring up the golf thing and the excellence because you know when you're at Western Illinois, you then transfer to Northwestern. Northwestern is an incredible school. I'm sure Western Illinois is very good, but you know, top notch. And that seemed to be, even though you weren't from a family that had a business background, much like me and, and many of the people who are in the military, you don't have that. Um, you seem to have a, an innate understanding that you know, Northwestern was really going to position you well to succeed or, or like get a, a better education, which would allow you to succeed in life. What was your framework on, on the decision to try to transfer to Northwestern? And how do you think through that decision? In the book, you go into it and, and you, you talk about it pretty in depth, but Maybe a, a short synopsis there would be would be useful. Well, it, I played a lot of competitive golf by that time at the national level, 
and I was good, but there were others who were better. Jack Nicholas, example that everybody would understand. And I didn't want to do it unless I thought I could be as good as anybody else. And I, I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to get to that point. I'd played a lot of you know national level competition, and uh, when it wasn't going to happen. And so I decided if I stayed at Western, I would probably end up as a golf pro, and I didn't want to do that. And, and all I knew was that Northwestern was the closest um, top school. I didn't know much about, you know, other schools. And uh, uh, fortunately, I went, I, went, I went up there one morning, and the, the golf coach was the ticket manager at the football stadium, and I didn't know to make an appointment. I just went there, and, and he was there. And uh, he knew who I was because he had followed my, my golf career in the newspapers in Chicago. And he had me enrolled in three days. And then I went back, and I almost didn't leave. The, go I, the golf coach at uh, Western Illinois is this great guy that, that had, was, you know, was very, very good to me. And he kind of talked me out of going. And uh, I got in a car to go, and I, I borrowed my father's car, and I, I had to bring it back. And I asked one of my buddies to go with me, and we stopped and had a couple of beers on the way out of town. And around midnight, we took off, and we went out. The, we got on the highway, and he says, he says, pull this car over. He said, this is stupid. He said, they're going to give you a golf scholarship. They're going to give you a scholarship to Northwestern to go play golf, and, you, and you're going to want to stay here. He said, that's crazy. He said, turn this car around. And we're going back to the dorm to get your stuff. And so I did. And if it wasn't for that guy, you know, this whole story would be different. But we turned around. I moved uh, out of the dorm at, in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, went on with my life. I was lucky. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And having a friend like Pat there to, yeah. to help you. Makes sense, but you also made the decision to apply initially. Like you saw that fork in the road for your life, and and you went for it, which I think goes to what's at the beginning and the end of the book, which is your your quote that the world belongs to the aggressive. And and where did you come up with that? And and how? I mean, I, I've seen I've seen how you've applied it in your life through reading the book. Um, when did that really originate for you? And 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 then when did you? start to explicitly live it because you can see it early on when you go to meet with the golf course golf coach at northwestern you know you're taking a chance you're just showing up not making an appointment and you do that a little later on with your first job out of northwestern as well um, yeah well i was a little rough around the edges so i wasn't acquainted with appointments and stuff like that but uh i would think i really started to notice uh, and I, I, that was kind of like my mantra, if that's the right term, the world belongs to the aggressive. It was really working with businessmen who wanted to develop their companies. And the ones who seemed to be successful were the, were the aggressive ones. And, and, uh, uh, so, and I realized that it, it applied, it, it applied uh, in general, in a lot of circumstances, and I felt like it applied to me in terms of what I was doing, because uh, I was motivated. 
and I wanted to uh, I wanted to succeed. I wanted to achieve, and I felt that you had to be aggressive to do it. There's too many smart people. It's for, the world is a very competitive place, and fortunately for me, I didn't I didn't mind. I kind of liked the competition. Uh, some people wouldn't, but uh, to succeed in a competitive environment, you have to be aggressive. And it seems like you might have identified it with CEOs, but it almost seems like you were living it before that in some ways. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, it wasn't life and death stuff, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it was doing it and uh, taking a chance. It was all the stuff was unknown. I had no background. It was all, you know, well, what do you do next? And uh, give it a chance. And you speak about this a bit in the book, but going from Northwestern to then your first job, at a bank in Chicago, again, you walk in, ask for an interview, they give you one, they give you a job. And then you kind of see that there are, there's a cohort of young professionals working there who just got, who are getting their MBAs at night. They're in a leadership development program. You're there for, you know, six to eight weeks, right? Working. And then you have to go off into the, the Marine Corps. But I think what I want to ask you about and ask you to kind of dive into a bit is that experience of being at that bank and seeing the group that are in the management um, program and, and you being on the outside of that. But then also your decision to join the Marine Corps. You know, you could have enlisted in the Navy or the Air Force, I'm sure, um, and, and served there. Um, but you chose the Marines and you chose Marine Infantry, uh, which is, you know, going for the pinnacle, the hardest job in, in the Marines. Well, as far as going into service uh, went, I decided that if I, if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it right. And I, uh, I didn't want to be in the National Guard or six-month reserve program. There were tons of programs available. And I said, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do something that will be different from what I'll do the rest of my life, and I want to do something challenging. And at the time, it was the Marine Corps. Navy SEALs didn't exist. They were the frogmen. Uh, the UDT down at Little Creek, which morphed into the SEALs. But at the time, the Marine Corps was, you know, it looked like it'd be certainly challenging enough. And so I wanted to do it right. And, uh, and it was a good decision because I got so much out of it. I, you know, I learned so much. I was formed so much by having to do what you had to do that it really, to me, it really paid off. Uh, rather than taking the easy way out. And yeah, when I, uh, I, I, I knew I was eventually going to get a draft notice, and I didn't know when, so that's when I got the job at the bank downtown in Chicago. And I, I just walked, I walked in there one day, I put on a, I put on a coat and tie, and there was a, there was a doorman, and I said, uh, I said, I'm so-and-so, and I've just graduated from Northwestern, and, and I would like to talk to somebody about a job. And he picked up a phone, had a conversation, and, and to my surprise, he told me to go up to whatever floor it was, and uh, somebody in uh, human resources was going to meet me. And I went up there, and we sat down, and uh, lo and behold, they offered me a job on the spot, and I took it. And uh, it was re it was in the the part of the bank that uh, loaned uh, made car loans and then repossessed the cars that uh, when, when the loans weren't paying off. So my job was to call people all day long and tell them to make a payment or your car's going to disappear. It was 
it was it was an experience. But yeah, there was this group in the management training program, and I I understood that these were people that had been recruited and and so forth. And I had been I solicited the doorman, so I wasn't in that group. But it, but nonetheless, I felt I never wanted to be in that position again in my life where I was in some organization and I was somewhat of a second-class citizen. And so I decided there that once I was done with the military, I was going to go get an, an MBA and put myself in you know, as high a position as I could starting out in the, in the workforce. And, and so then you end up in the GSB. You know, I end up in the GSB. Three and a half years later. Exactly. Um, you studied hard. When you were at the GSB, that's that's pretty much all I did. had a had a wife and a baby, and uh, rented uh, an apartment in the mail before I got there, and and uh, I I studied hard. It's the first time I ever did that, I and I enjoyed it, and I got a lot out of it. It's the way it goes. You got to put a lot in to get a lot out, right? Yeah, it's been my experience <laughs> throughout life. And while you were there, you know, you didn't. I think you, you quickly realized you wanted to do something in finance. Um, uh, it took a while. Okay. You know, uh, the first, it took, it took a two or three quarters to, 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 get, to know that. I thought initially I would be interested in marketing because I, was, I knew I was pretty good in, in talking to people. But uh, when, I, when I took the marketing uh, introductory course, I didn't like it. And so then the finance, finance I did like. I, it was, I thought the markets were really interesting, and you know, it, it, it seemed like a, a good, a good intellectual fit as well as uh, fit in terms of having to deal with people. And when you were attending, what was the recruiting schedule like? Uh, you know, we, we show up today, and you know, before school starts, you kind of have to have an idea if you want to do investment banking or consulting. Yeah, I've never, I've always thought that that was very, very difficult. It's just so competitive. So many businesses want, you know, top MBAs, and so they're 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 aggressive. They're in there early, and they're they're trying to find you. wasn't like that at all. There was no recruiting uh, until you know the second year. the The placement office at the school wasn't particularly good. There were a lot of people who didn't come to Chicago for whatever reason, like the Wall Street firms didn't hardly recruit at all in those days. Uh, in fact, the, the, Lehman, the Lehman Brothers where I started, their philosophy on the new hires was the ones we want will find their way to us and they will, we'll hire them. They didn't recruit at all. So it was a very, very different world. And, uh, and there was some recruiting, and I, I interviewed Procter & Gamble, the uh, Ford financial staff, Corning Glass, and uh, some of them offered me jobs, and uh, none of them were of interest to me at all. For some reason, I just didn't see myself working in a big corporate structure, uh, didn't do it, and uh, that was just me. But it was that was recruiting, and I ended up uh, with Lehman Brothers because I worked for the jewel companies that summer, and they there was a partner from Lehman Brothers on their board. They offered me a very attractive full-time job, but 
I told them that I wanted to try investment banking, and they sent me to see this people at Lehman, and it worked. They offered me a job, and, and I took it. And so kind of as, as we dive into the next chapter of your career, which is, you know, investment banking and the M&A business, could you just give a quick rundown on, on what investment banking is and what mergers and acquisitions M&A is for the listeners out there who might not be very familiar? Well, when I started in uh, January of 1968, there were literally hundreds of small partnerships on Wall Street, and they basically were brokers. They sold stocks and bonds. Uh, they invested money for clients, and they raised money for companies. Um, but there was no M and A. Uh, you know, there were Goldman Sachs uh, at the time had a business where they sold private companies, um, and that they they call it the exclusive sale business. But there was no takeovers. There were uh, and they, they didn't get involved in acquiring companies. They just sold companies. And so it was, it was a business of financing. So for the first, first years of my career, I worked on financing companies. For example, Caterpillar Tractor was a, a client of mine, and I raised hundreds of millions of dollars with them, timing you know, the, when, to, when to, to sell bonds. It was all debt securities. Uh, and I did it for a number of Lehman's largest clients. And I did, uh, I did get involved in, in buying and selling some smaller companies. And I got to a point where the financing business kind of uh, lost its charm. It kind of bored me. And uh, by that time, I had worked with a lot of CEOs, and I decided that the ones who were aggressive we're going to start buying larger companies and to develop their business. And, uh, uh, and that's what happened. And uh, uh, the, the uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley had created specialized groups to just work on M&A, to be specialists. And I felt that that was the only way to do it because the clients were going to hire the people that did it full time and knew the most about it. So I set up the business at Lehman Brothers to do that, and and uh, I ran that until uh, eventually I left and went to Morgan Stanley. And so you know, as a newly minted MBA and future um, future consultant, uh, mergers and acquisitions, from from my perspective and understanding, would be that you're going out and looking for targets that you can come to the CEO and say, hey, these would be great companies for you to acquire. They're, they're going to complement your current business structure and give you the ability to you know, have a higher market valuation as a company, increase the overall value that you're providing your, your shareholders, um, and it'll fit nicely in your capital structure as well, your debt and your equity and everything else. Is that a an accurate way of putting it or would you that's that's part of it okay that's part of it and uh, and uh and then all that changed uh in the in the last half of the 80s because of uh, uh one guy who was at a firm called drexel uh, who created the high yield bond market and uh we, i'll explain that in a minute but part of it is going out and doing exactly what you said sometimes it ends up in a transaction, but most of the time it doesn't, but it gives you a dialogue with the client. 
And more times than not, the client then something on its own unrelated to you happens and he needs help. And if you've impressed him, he might call you and hire you to help him. And that's what happened with Mike Harper at ConAgra, who I mentioned. I had uh, met him, I sold a uh, division uh, uh, for a company called Pillsbury that he was in charge of. And he ended up leaving Pillsbury, taking over ConAgra, and he called me uh, because I guess he thought I was okay. And he needed some financial help at the beginning. And that's how we started, and that developed into a 20-year relationship and you know a huge success. So that's part of the reason why you go out and you see people. Uh, that Zoom will not change that. It will still be necessary to, to, to get out there and meet people and talk to them because all these CEOs are interested. I'm telling you, there's, I don't think I can name one that's not interested in acquiring companies if it makes sense, if it can be done right, and advancing his business. And there's, there's if, if you read the book, the, the part that goes through uh, some of the early deals that I did and how I got really involved and set up the M&A business, and then the part about the 80s when uh, Mike Milken was at Drexel and the, the deals that were done then will give you a real idea what M&A is all about. No, absolutely. And you know, to anybody out there, I recommend reading the book and researching the companies and then rereading those parts because you know you might not know ConAgra initially and you might not know Drexel initially or the players unless you you kind of get an understanding of what else of, of the whole Wall Street scene and so I think that it's a it's an excellent standalone book but I think a lot of military folks could could benefit from doing a bit of research on on those companies as they read it to get a, a richer understanding of how you saw the landscape and and really were able to be successful across many, many, many different deals. Right. Um, and the one thing I'd like to highlight too is coming into business school, a lot of people think M&A and they think transactions. And so then some vets will think that it's transactional, meaning that it's not a relationship business, which couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Um, and reading your book kind of brings that to light. Your, you know, your relationship with Mike, Mike Harper was over 20 years. Many people called you because of your reputation and you, you speak about your lifelong friendships that you developed through business uh, consistently in the book. And so I just want to highlight that point that, you know, investment banking and M&A in general isn't a transactional business in the sense that you're developing relationships over time. And, and that reputation that you develop matters and your relationships with all those individuals matter as well. It goes back to the North Star, you know, the flawless integrity. Many CEOs told me that there were a couple of attributes that they valued most about working with me, and that's why they hired me. One was they knew that when I advised them on what I thought their alternatives were and which one they ought to select, they knew I did it without agenda, that I was, I was giving them my best advice. And it's, that's hard to find that because in any corporate structure, Everybody in the, in, the, in the structure wants to be the next CEO or the next CFO or whatever, and their advice on what to do sometimes can be affected by that, by the politics of it. And so it's harder than you may think intuitively to get you know, real unagended advice. You know, that was number one. 
And uh, number two, they told me that my style and my writing style is the same way, uh, people have said, is very concise. So I was good at getting up in front of their board. And you've got a bunch of directors who have, do not have all the information, cannot thoroughly understand all the ins and outs. And I guess I was pretty good at explaining what their alternatives were and why they should do a certain, the best one. And that was very valuable to the CEOs because they wanted the board to make the right decision. They wanted to go forward with the deal. And it goes, it goes back to the Marine Corps. You know, you tell, you tell the truth, the troops straight, and you explain what you're doing, and, and you go do it. And it's the same thing in business. Why is that so hard to find? It's just hard to find. It is. It, the Wall Street, because it's, uh, it's not all factual. It's, a, it's like when you're talking about whether you should buy the company. How should you go about buying a company? Who's going to compete? What are they going to do? How much are they going to pay? What should you pay? Well, this is all, it's all pretty complicated stuff. And it, there's no manual that gives you all the answers. You can't look over on the next page and it's not a multiple choice test. It's tough and you got to put it all together, all the pieces, and somehow convince people that it's in their interest to do the one that you think is going to work the best. And so it's not easy to get that advice. And just because you work, you know, you're going to work for a great consulting firm and, and um, the consulting firms uh, get hired a lot uh, on M&A deals to advise the board. And it's really kind of an insurance policy for the CEO. You know, if, this, if the deal doesn't work or something goes badly and you've had McKinsey or BCG or Bain come in and say they've done their analysis and we think it's a good deal, the company's a good fit, it takes a little of the heat off the CEO. And so even there, uh, you know, you're not sure what the agenda is. The consulting firm is kind of placed in a role where they're supposed to support the CEO. Do they really mean it? You know, or they just, that's why they've been brought in. They haven't been brought in to do the deal. They've been brought in to tell, counsel the board that it's a sensible uh, course of action. So it's, it's difficult to get independent advice, and that really served me well. And I'm telling you, it goes back to having, uh, you know, the guys from uh, Newark and Camden and so forth and looking them in the eye and saying, here's where we stand, here's what we're going to do, here's why, let's go do it. No, it, it, I found that people appreciate when, when you shoot them straight as well, even if it's uh, you know, not the best advice for them to hear in the moment, they appreciate it. The most dangerous thing, in, one of the most dangerous things in business is, is to be influenced by somebody who might love you, just might be your best friend, but he or she has the inclination to tell you what he or she thinks you want to hear. And people like that can't help it. That's just the way they're wired. And that is dangerous. You don't want that. You, you want to hear somebody who's an expert give you the best advice and tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do, even if it's not what you want to hear.
Absolutely. It's the only way to get better because, you know, you'll be conscious of some of your mistakes, but you won't be conscious of all of them. Yeah. And so you have to have somebody who's willing to, to give you the bad news so you can improve. Yeah. But like, a, you know, a few minutes ago, I went through all these variables that you, that you have to think about. And there's more. Uh, there's, uh, you know, what the SEC will do. Will it be an antitrust problem? You know, how will you play that? What would you divest if there was? You know, all this stuff has to be distilled down to concise statements that a guy who's on the board who has liability will say, okay, I got it, I understand it, and I'm, I'm willing to support it. That's why the really good M&A advisors get paid millions of dollars, because they can do that. Right, and that, and that guy on that board... You know, he may be on three or four boards. And most likely is if yeah. it's a big company. I mean, the companies, uh, uh, some of the companies in the, uh, when I go through the last, the, the Milken era of, uh, they won't need too much identification. You know, Gillette, Union Carbide, Revlon, uh, RJR Nabisco. You know, people know about those companies and they were the ones under fire uh, in that period, Texaco. I mean, these were fascinating deals. And uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to publish this book because none of that stuff has ever been published before. And, you know, in my, during my career, I was invited to speak often at all the business schools or teach a case and so forth. So I, and I did when I could because it was great for recruiting and uh, it was beneficial I think for students to kind of hear somebody who was actually doing it. And every time without exception, when I was done, no matter what the topic had been, the question was, what did you, how did you succeed? What did you do to succeed? And what do I have to do to succeed? And that's, that's the main reason I published this book because it's a narrative. It's a story. And, but all the elements are in there, like we're talking about, like, you know, the North Star. And I think it's easier to learn something if you're reading a story that's hopefully somewhat interesting versus a textbook where some professor has researched various things and interpolated this or that and, you know, talks about leadership. And uh, so that... Uh, you want to know what M&A is all about, read the part about the Milken era, and then you'll really know. No, it's it's super fascinating, and I want to get there. Um, yeah. I do want to start, though, now that there's a better understanding of M&A and, and you know, how your career kind of fit into it and how you helped develop it, really. You were at Lehman from 68 to 83, right? Right. And, you know, showing up in, in being new to finance you, is your first real job, as you like to put it. Right. Um, it, you know, there's a brief mention of someone else who, you know, you had to rotate desks because there were only 16 desks, I think. Right. And some other intern or some other new hire didn't cut it. And you did. Um, how, what were obviously just a competence in finance is, is part of what probably let you get your foot in the door and succeed in that first year. Um, but what were the things that you focused on early in your career and then how did that shift as you as you kind of gained experience and got your feet underneath you i got hired because i had worked for a summer for one of their top clients 
and the client had offered me a full-time job, so they liked me. And they understood when I said, I'm going to go to New York and see what this is all about, because otherwise I'll wonder for the rest of my life why I didn't. And they gave me a very strong recommendation. So I got hired because I had a Chicago MBA, and I had a, I had a, a major company that gave me a good reference, and they met me, and I behaved myself during the lunch where I met them. And it, that was it. And it wasn't because I had any expertise, because I really didn't. I just had these credentials. You know, I'd, I'd, I, was, I played golf. It didn't matter very much. I had a very good MBA. I, I had successfully worked for a client. Uh, and I, I was at least marginally intelligent. And uh, military experience helped. So they gave me a job. So what, what, you, what you do at the beginning of the job is you're doing, you're doing numbers for the other 14 guys in the department. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was very Darwinian. So you, the guy who, there was a, a guy my age from the Chicago office who occupied the last available seat. And so every day when I came in, I, I would sit at a different desk, uh, somebody's desk who was out of town. And that was good because I met all the, I met all the people in the department. I could hear how they did things over the phone. That was the purpose. Everybody shared an office. It was actually a very good system. Um, and so, but this, this, this young guy from Chicago, I guess I, 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 he wasn't doing very well. So not too long after I got there, they sent him back to Chicago and I got his seat and, uh, and that's the way it worked. But, but all I did was, was do numbers. So one thing I did was number one, I was good with numbers and I made sure there weren't any mistakes for sure, you know. And I wasn't careless, and I didn't. They didn't need to tell me how to do it. I could. I understood. It was just arithmetic. This was not calculus. Secondly, I did it quick. Third, I could. I figured out very quickly. The individuals who would explain things to me and understood and helped me learn you know, the parts that I didn't quite understand versus others who just wanted the numbers and didn't give me any feedback. And so very, very soon, I was very busy when those others came to see me. And I did, I worked for the ones who helped me. And I had to do it because there was a lot of demand. You know, so starting out, I mean, that's the common sense again. And, uh, and then after a while, a short while, I started doing things on my own because I didn't, I had no fear. And I started, after six or seven months, I started calling on small companies in New York City just to go out and do it. And uh, it, it went on from there. And I could do it at Lehman Brothers because it was very, it was a place full of talent, but not, not much of a structure. You could kind of do what you wanted to do. And that was great for me because I was ready for that. And was there a moment where you, you felt like someone in the organization noticed that you have tremendous potential? I, I know that you made partner in four and a half years, which is, I, I imagine, pretty fast. 
Um, but was there a spot where you, you realized, okay, I'm competent. I can do this probably six, seven months. in when you start calling on small companies, but then a spot where somebody else validates you and says, we really think that you're going to go places. Yeah, there was definitely that spot, uh, a number of times. And, uh, in the book, how I tell about there's a, there was a fellow named Lewis Glucksman who at the time established, uh, commercial paper business at Lehman. Commercial paper is short-term financing for companies. It's a huge business. Every, every company uses it. Uh, uh, and it's, it's uh, faster and simpler than going to the bank and having loan agreements and so forth. And it's a security, but it's short-term. And so uh, Glucksman liked me. He, I think he, he, he really valued the fact that I'd been in the military because I'd been out with real people. And most of the other guys in, in my department uh, are what I call the uh, Andover, Princeton, Harvard kind of background, where they all had that East Coast, you know, boarding school, one of the elite schools, you know, Harvard Business School. And I was different, you know, I was the only one who'd been in the military. Uh, for some reason, they, the rest of them had, had avoided it. And, uh, and I was, I was, you know, they looked at me like I was Midwestern, even though I'd lived all over the world. So he liked that. And, uh, uh, so when the investment banking business came in through the commercial paper business, he would get a hold of me and he'd turn it over to me. And I started doing stuff at a very young age and I, I had the confidence to accept it and make it all work. So my learning curve was vertical. It was 90 degrees. It was so good. And so that was one of those times where, you know, that really accelerated my progress there. And I, and I did get to be a partner, you know, very quickly based on uh, historical standards. So you never know. When I showed up there, you know, I got the job, but I didn't know anything else. I didn't know anybody there other than the two guys I met when I had my interview. And uh, you just go with it. And so was it before or after Lou discovered you, you know, that you kind of knew you could do it and that you knew you were going to go places as well? Uh, probably a little bit before, because I got comfortable, you know, there. I, I, I knew how to, I really understood the aspects, the, the basic aspects of the business and how you analyze things. And this was way before computers and uh, you know, spread, uh, you know, where you could do everything. It was before ca calculators were, guys used a slide rule to do calculations. That's how early it was. And then finally, uh, there was the first Litton Industries calculator would take half of a normal sized desk. And they, they had cathode ray tubes. I mean, it was, people, people of your generation would think it was ridiculous. Um, and uh, so I knew, I knew pretty quickly that I got it. I understood it. I knew how it worked. I liked it. Everything, my assumptions about it being a business that uh, incorporated elements of dealing with people, elements of the uncertainty of markets, you know, elements of finance, which was, was not particularly rigorous, but took a lot of good judgment. You know, that worked for me. And you speak about the eat what you kill and very individual 
um, culture that existed at Lehman. And, you know, you were there for 15 years. Almost 16, yeah. Did that, after doing, you know, being shaped by the Marines, where it's a teamwork environment, was it tough to be there for that long or because you were excelling and you were able to build the business, um, you were kind of able to create a culture within the, the firm that it kind of felt more um, aligned with kind of your view on, on teamwork and your view on how to get the job done? Yes and no. There were, when I set up the M&A department, we had teamwork within, but the rest of the firm, there was no teamwork and it was, there was always a burden. Uh, you, somehow you were almost at odds with someone who had a different agenda. And uh, I finally got tired of that and left and went to Morgan Stanley and there it was totally different. Totally different, it was all teamwork and, and, and the aggravation of people competing with themselves was gone. Uh, so it was, uh, it was kind of an awakening. And had it occurred to you before, and you go into all the details in the book, but mm -hmm. you know, there's a moment where Lou Gluckman, who had been a mentor to you, and then he forces out the old CEO, becomes the CEO, and gives the majority of the bonus pool to himself. He made a, he made a terrible mistake. He, he was frustrated. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Peter Peterson who got to be the CEO. Uh, to, the two, two guys had succeeded, Robert Lehman, who was obviously a member of the Lehman family. Uh, one of them got, became ill right away and had to step down, and the next one was a misfit. It was, wasn't up to the job, and so Peterson had been the Secretary of Commerce in the Nixon administration, and he showed up, and uh, he was like a compromised candidate. He became the, the uh, CEO, and he was a very divisive guy. He fit right into this eat what you can culture and, and, and never made it never made it better. He, he, he was a, a successful businessman. He was a very good salesman, but he was unable to change the culture of the place. And Glucksman, who generated an enormous amount of profits, felt like a second class citizen and just drove him crazy. And he finally got to a point where he had the he had enough backing and the power, and he forced Peterson out, forced him out of the firm. Forced him, said, you gotta go. And Peterson knew that Glucksman had become so powerful because of the profitability of what he created that Peterson would, would have to go. And I was, uh, I was excited. I thought, wow, this is a chance. Because I was a loyal guy, you know, I was there I hadn't thought of going anywhere. I'd been there almost 16 years. Every I had accumulated some money, you know, by my partnership earnings, and that's all I, I didn't have anything else besides that. And uh, that first year, Glucksman and uh, uh, three other guys who worked for him in fixed income took a hugely disproportionate share of the bonus pool. And the bonus pool is important because in those days, everybody worked on a very low salary but if the year was good, uh, made all their money through the bonus. And so Peterson, I guess, uh, so Glucksman, I guess, had said it was time for him to really benefit from this. And uh, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I said, you know, I don't like this anymore. I'm going to leave. I decided just it was one of those instantaneous things. 
and I decided that uh, if I could, I wanted to go to Morgan Stanley. I knew a couple of the top people there. I liked them, and if they were interested in me, I decided I would go there, and uh, it all happened very quickly. I, I When I spoke to them, they, they decided right away that they wanted to do it, and within three weeks after that instantaneous decision, I was a partner in Morgan Stanley. I was there. And that kind of really does open the door for, you know, the, I think what you call the World Series of, of M&A yeah. in, the, in the mid to late 80s um, with Milken and all the takeovers. And you list them in the book, or at least a few of them, with Texaco, Union Carbine, Gillette, Revlon, RJR Nabisco. And what's interesting is that you're on the, I believe you're on the right side of every single one of these transactions. I was on the side that prevailed. Yeah. Right. And it was, it's, uh, it was a f- fantastic period. It only lasted about five years, but it transformed business. Uh, companies restructured on their own so that they, they weren't vulnerable to, you know, what Milken was doing. And uh, uh, it's, when I think about it today, I still think about what a fascinating period it was. And I say in a book, it was like playing it was like playing a high-level sport for huge amounts of money. And it was totally competitive, totally visible. It was covered in the newspapers every day. And you were, you were out there. And either you performed or you didn't perform. And there was a big difference between those two. And so to me, it was just invigorating. You know, I, I just lived for it. And, uh, you know... The world belongs to the aggressive. Your your ability to be so successful in that period against very 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 good competition. What was how did you're clearly excellent at what you do, and you have creativity as well with the different ways that you were able to get some of these deals done. Uh, the Revlon one comes to mind for sure. Um, what allowed you to? be so successful against this competition at such a high rate um, because you know you name five or six deals here where you were on this the side that prevailed you know uh, there's some things that uh, people are receive as a gift when they're born you know I'm a, obviously a golfer you think of Tiger Woods it was from another planet you know, his, he, his eye-hand coordination defies belief. And I'm not comparing myself to that, but in terms of figuring out these deals, uh, I could always see where the puck was going to be two or three moves ahead. And I just, my mind just worked that way. And that was a big advantage when it came to figuring out what would happen because what I tried to do was to look ahead, see what all the moves would be, see what, see what the people on the other side would do, what was the most sensible thing for them to do, and then figure out what my client could do to offset that before, all before it happened and try to figure out the steps that would be necessary to, to put, you know, my client in that position and I, I was that that I was good at that 
that's yeah strategy and expertise and action yeah um you know in the military it's action reaction counteraction you know you're looking yeah. at what what your move is going to be and how or like in chess you know can you see moves ahead and into what the different opportunities are and yeah. you were able to do that well yeah is that something you started at the very beginning of Lehman, your time at Lehman, once you started calling on companies? is Were you thinking through that thought process, or is that something that you started to develop a little later on? Oh, much later on. Much later on. After, you know, it was a part of it was uh, experiential. You know, that if you, I worked on so many merger deals all through my career, once, once, that, once that period began, that you you build up uh, an inventory of experience in your in your in your brain, and you know that helps uh, that helps with the ability to do what I what I described. So it certainly wasn't at the beginning. It also seems like that wasn't passive, right? Sure, you're doing all these deals and working hard, and you're developing you know patterns in your mind as you go through many different deals, but. I think the example with Texaco and Carl Icahn is is a good example of it not being accidental. Like the fact that you knew, how did you know that rule that the SEC had on if you had over 15% of a, of a share in a company, the special dividend didn't apply to you? I didn't know that rule, but one of the lawyers that we worked with okay. knew that rule. And we were I was trying to figure out a way um, to you know, to get him out and, and to do some kind of a self-tender that would get him out. And this lawyer knew this very obscure rule. And I was able to persuade the CEO of Texaco, and it took some persuading, that this was the way to do it. This was very unorthodox, that it couldn't be a bluff. He had to tell Icon, this is what we're gonna do. And hopefully Icon would then say, okay, I'll, I'll get out. But if he didn't, we were going to have to do this, and it was going to look very, very unorthodox. We were going to tender for a set, we were going to make a self tender for stock at a, at a super high price, way over where the market was, because Icon would be ineligible to do it because of this obscure SEC rule. So it took some persuading because if the CEO had done this, the people would 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 have said, "Well, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. You never do that." You've, you want to tender at the lowest price. Why would the company, you know, tender at the highest price, even though the money's going to their shareholders? So that was the persuasive part. But the good part was that Icon that Icon immediately capitulated, which is what I assumed he would do. Didn't make sense otherwise. And he made a lot of money. You got to hand it to him. He got in early. You know, the stock had gone gone substantially up through this whole process. It's described in a book. Uh, and he got out, and uh, Texaco once again was an independent company uh, for a while. Yeah, he made so a lot of money. I, I wish I could take credit for knowing that little okay. rule, but I didn't. All right. Um, and with RJR Nabisco and, and your role in that, you had a great relationship with KKR, um, and you, you speak about the leak to the, the press towards the end. So RJR Nabisco, it's a big merger tobacco company with with a great company they're doing well but and the cash flows are great but their valuation super low and kkr was super concerned with being viewed as a you know 
as a takeover company. They didn't want to be viewed that way, right? They only wanted to do mergers where it made sense and where it was mutually beneficial. They didn't want to, no, they, they, they didn't want to look like they went in and they were taking over RGR because they were afraid that that would damage them with all the other companies that they wanted to meet and talk them into doing, you know, private equity, LBOs. Mm -hmm because the people would be afraid to meet with them. They would say, we don't want to meet with these guys and talk about our business. They might do a takeover bid. And I said to my initial phone call when I, when I talked to Henry Kravis about it, I said, well, it doesn't work that way because when management says we're going to make a bid to buy the company, the board will form a special committee of directors and they have to open up the bidding to all others to see if they're getting the highest price. So it's, the takeover was initiated by the management. The rest of the bidders are in fact invited in. And I was sure that when he researched that with his lawyers and his partners, they would come to that conclusion, which they did. But I knew the, the Ross Johnson uh, as well or better than I knew Henry Kravitz and George Roberts, which is also described in a book that the deals I did with him and uh, that was a very odd deal. It's, it, uh, it gets a, a lot of notoriety and there's a lot of business school interest in it, but it was not at all as complicated and dramatic as some of the other deals, you know, like Texaco and, and Union Carbide and Gillette and Revlon. The, the reason I bring this one up is I think your focus on flawless integrity is, is important. And there's an example towards the end of, of the RJR Nabisco where something is leaked to the press that shouldn't be. And, and I think you describe it in the book as one of the worst things you can do in a situation like that. Um, and they weren't sure early on who, who, had, who had leaked it. And you're in the room with a small group of people. Um, and that the situation and the way that, that Henry treated you after that for a short period of time was definitely colder than it had been previously. Um, how did you deal with that situation and, and how did your repu your sterling reputation, was it able to buoy you throughout that whole process or did you have to work your way back into a position of trust? And Well, what happened was I, I had called him uh, the morning that the management bid had come over the uh, news services and I, I said, this is what's going on and they're bidding way too low. The value of the company's, you know, $20 a share higher than their first bid. And then he said, well, we can't do that, though. We can't be a takeover for the reason, takeover artists because of the reason I explained. And I said, no, that's, that's, you'll see. And he said, okay. He said, why don't, uh, you, why don't you come over at uh, 5 o'clock this afternoon and we'll see where we are. So <clears throat> I did, and uh, Leon Black was there, who at the time was supposedly a merger guy from Drexel, Bruce Wasserstein, my buddy who was, you know, a, a tremendous uh, M&A guy, um, and some financing people. We're all in this conference room, and uh, Henry was talking to his cousin George, who's, who's uh, located in California, Palo Alto, and uh, they're lawyers. And we were in a conference room for hours, Pizza was delivered, and maybe 9 o'clock, Henry comes in and says, okay, he said, we're going to go ahead. We understand. 
and uh, uh, let's get together tomorrow. So everybody went home. I get up the next morning. The newspapers are in my the foyer of my apartment. I pick up the New York Times, and in the middle of the front page, it says RJR going. Uh, it says KKR is going to bid for RJR. So it had been leaked, and uh, couldn't tell right away. Had to do an analysis of the telephone records and get the <coughs> permission for the phone company to do it and all that. So the next morning. Uh, Henry Henry was, you know, seriously pissed, and he should have been. And he didn't fire everybody because uh, that would have created other problems. Uh, but basically, he cut everybody out of what was going on. And uh, Bruce and I had had some uh, dealings and did some advisory stuff in the course of the deal, but not like in a normal deal. And the deal itself was abnormal because all it involved was deciding whether to keep raising the price or not. There were no tactics. There were, there were every private equity firm that felt that they had to be, show their manhood and show up was, was there. And it was just a question of rise, raise, keeping raising the, the price until everybody else gave up, which is what KKR did. They felt they had to win it. So it was, uh, the notoriety on RGO Nabisco was as big as any deal ever. It was the biggest private equity deal at the time. I think it was about $25 billion. But as a business deal, it was, it was actually pretty boring. And uh, they eventually determined that both uh, Bruce Wasserstein and another guy had leaked it independently to the same reporter at the New York Times, who was a, an M&A reporter. And people do that, and uh, they do that to get uh, a favor some other time, or to get mentioned, you know, in you know, as an advisor or whatever. And in this case, you know, that's what happened, and uh, that's just that's how that deal evolved. I didn't, I didn't feel, I, I didn't feel at any time that Henry thought it was me, and didn't never worried about it because I knew it wasn't me. Right. Um, and switching to the Revlon deal, and that's just to, I guess, to highlight that when you live with integrity, you, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I never worried about it. Um, and so then with, um, with Revlon, I think that it's one last deal I'd like to highlight at your time at, at Morgan Stanley. I think it's uniquely interesting. They bought three different healthcare companies over the course of time. And so it was a healthcare company, essentially, with a cosmetics company attached to it. But everybody knows Revlon as a cosmetics company. Um, and so you saw a company where the CEO was of the mind that he could do this by himself and he could buy buy it out himself and that not in talking to all these other companies that he wouldn't need an investment banker in order to do what he wanted to do but that you knew that you could sell these healthcare companies and essentially pay for the cosmetics company for free. And so if you, if hopefully I set that up okay for you yeah. to kind of talk through. No, we, you know, he, we found out about it because he didn't know what he was doing. He, and he started out by going to prospective buyers of the healthcare companies and telling them that he was thinking about doing a management buyout and would they be interested in acquiring XYZ, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
<clears throat> and when you do that, uh, the other companies are going to go and try to get advice about what was going on. It was a highly unusual kind of situation for management to be out talking to third parties and soliciting interest in parts of their business with no public disclosure. So a couple of them came to Morgan Stanley. We found out about it. And I, I kind of thought through the situation, and I said, you know, this guy's going to, he's going to do something, and he's not going to be able to pull it off, but somebody is. And I had, uh, it, it would take a certain kind of buyer. It would take somebody who wanted the cosmetics business and was aggressive enough to stick in there in what would be a very contested situation. And uh, I thought uh, this fellow Ronald Perlman was the right guy. I'd met him. He was very smart, and I thought he was very honest, and he's tough. But he was not your typical Morgan Stanley client at all. He was a financial entrepreneur, and up until that point, Morgan Stanley hadn't really done any business with people like that. They were, they were the people that went to Mike Milken at Drexel. So... Anyway, we worked through the analysis. We decided that if you could get control of it at uh, you know, a certain price, control of Revlon, you could sell the parts, and you could end up with the cosmetics business for free. Perlman said, okay, we, we negotiated a $30 million fee if we could make it work, which in those days was a lot, uh, really a lot. And I went to the executive committee at Morgan Stanley who ran it, four guys, and uh, gave them, I gave them my analysis of the situation and that uh, I told them I thought I could make this work and I wanted to do it. And later on that day, the chairman of the board called me up and he said, uh, he said, Eric, I trust you. And so we're going to go with you on this. He said, but don't, please don't embarrass the firm. So I could see, I said, I could see floating across my, my visual screen the tape that said, uh, you have just bet your career on this deal at, at Morgan Stanley. Uh, so I said, all right, you know, we'll, we'll go for it. And uh, I, I, I knew that if it didn't work, I'd always figure something out. And um, I thought it could work, and, and in fact it did. And we did everything we said we were going to do, and we earned the, the fee. And uh, actually, a lot of people said it was good for Morgan Stanley. It got them out of the kind of white shoe rut that they were in and brought them into the more modern world of Wall Street and investment banking. I, I bring up this deal for two reasons, I think. One is the creativity and how you structured it and how you went about getting it done. And then the second one, I think it's really emblematic of the title of your book, Risk, Reward, Repeat. You know, you took a risk, but it was a calculated risk, and it was one built on a foundation of competence and experience. And, and you mm -hmm. knew that there was, you know, I don't know if you thought it was a 60% chance or an 80% probability of success. Because there's always risk, but you you thought you could get it done, and you did. I thought that the the risk would be that just somebody else, for whatever reason, would bid higher and get it to the point where it didn't work, and that didn't happen. 
that was the risk. But I was pretty confident that the, the proceeds of selling the three subsidiaries, you know, uh, after tax would would pay for the whole thing, which it, which it did. Um, so, you know, we uh, so we went ahead. Which I think brings us to, you know, your decision to strike out on your own and, and form Gleetrain Company. Um, what was your motivation for, you know, you loved your time at Morgan Stanley. There was no, no, no catalyst to leave. But what, when did the idea kind of enter your mind? You talk in the book that, you know, you'd been considering it for a number of years. And then you, you, you've pulled the trigger to form your own firm in 1990. Yeah, I've been thinking about it for two years. Uh, I was a little bit jealous of my friend Bruce Wasserstein, who had, had done it. Uh, I wanted to do it. I, 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 had, I loved Morgan Stanley. It was very comfortable, great firm, lots, just every, you know, smart people everywhere, uh, a lot of good personal relationships. But I just felt like there were, if I didn't try to do it, you know, it was one of those things that I would always think about, why didn't I do it? And, you know, I've had a couple of iterations in my life where that was the case. Going to Northwestern, going in Marine Corps, you know, uh, going to Wall Street when I could have stayed at Jewel. And uh, every time I had done it, it, it had worked out. I was glad I did it. So it was simply that I, that I wanted to do it. And uh, it's one of the opportunities that we have in this great country. You know, you could do things like that. Uh, it didn't really happen anywhere else. And even, even today, where there's lots of little boutiques everywhere, the, the ones that have been successful have been in the United States, just like technology. You know, now there's more technology in Asia and there's some in Scandinavia and there's a little bit in Europe and there's some in the UK, but nothing is like Silicon Valley. And so I felt that I could walk out and announce that I was going to do it. There would be some people who want to do it with me. And I was pretty sure that there would be a handful of clients that would retain the firm right away, give me some capital uh, to work with. And I wanted to do it. And uh, so I did. And one thing I found interesting was the way you structured it. Uh, so, you know, as an M&A guy, you're going out and helping companies acquire other businesses to grow. Um, but the focus of your firm was on profitability per partner instead of size and trying to be the biggest investment bank um, over time. What was the, the driver for you in that philosophy? And why did that matter? I think the real driver there was that it worked right away. The first year, and I, one of the things I, that I consciously didn't do was to try to hire a lot of people from Morgan Stanley because it wasn't that kind of deal. Uh, when Bruce Wasserstein left First Boston, he took a lot of people with him. There was, it was an acrimonious thing. There was a disagreement, so he left. And that wasn't the case with me because I've been treated well. You know, I had friends there. I liked them. I wasn't doing it. There was no negative for Morgan Stanley. This was just personal that I'm doing something that I wanted to do. So the first year, <clears throat> we only had about 10 people in the firm, two or three 
uh, young partners and, you know, secretaries, stuff like that. And we made, you know, a ton of money. It was, it was enormously profitable. And I think that that affected the outlook of all of us who were there. We were saying, why do we have to worry about being big? Why not just do the business we want to do? And if it, it continues to be really profitable, that's you know, pretty good. So that's where that started. It was the, it was the success of that first year, you know, okay. where, where we had close to $30 million of revenue and we had, you know, 10 people. So that was okay. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. Uh, another point, I think, in I'm asking these questions because I think they go to the culture of the firm yeah. you wanted to create, was around giving equity to everyone in the firm. Yeah. Um, clearly a conscious decision you made. Um, what, was, what did that mean to you and why did you do it? Well, I knew that I wanted to own equity in a business when I came to Wall Street because there were literally back in, in the, when I came in 1968, there were hundreds of small partnerships and people owned equity and they were mostly brokers, but they owned a business. And uh, uh, that was something that I could see I wanted. I wanted to be an owner. And at Lehman, if you did well, eventually you could become a partner, which I did. And when I <clears throat> joined Morgan Stanley, <clears throat> excuse me, when I joined Morgan Stanley, I went in as a partner. And so I said, well, this is important to me. It's a motivation, a driving factor for me. It's got to be the same for other people. So um, all, the, all the senior people, as we developed the firm, when I brought them in, I gave them some equity, you know, a small amount. And then if they, but if they did well, those percentages would, would go up. <clears throat> and my secretary, <clears throat> uh, who still is my assistant, um, I gave her 1% of the firm, which was, which was a lot, but she was great. And then I could count on her. She freed me up to do everything. And so she benefited greatly. And she had two sons. And in, instead of them going to state colleges or whatever, one went to MIT and the other went to Princeton. And uh, both of them are extremely successful. And I liked that. You know, I liked it. I thought that well of her. And she was able to, to pay for them. You know, they didn't go on scholarship. She paid for it. And that they developed into extremely successful people. And, and, and when, you know, we sold our firm at some point. So <clears throat> all the guys who were there at Equity, you know, did very well. But that's why. That's why I did it. No, I mean, I, people respond to incentives. And I think that you, you give them ownership of something, you know, give them ownership of their job and then give them ownership of the, the company. They're going to they're going to work harder for you. When they wake up in the morning, get dressed, and go into work, they feel like an owner because they are. Mm -hmm. And and that's 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 a very valuable feeling. And one deal, I think it was early on, uh, was uh, the deal you were able to do with Beatrice Foods, mm -hmm. which reunited you with with Mike Harper and ConAgra, and also reunited you with KKR from right. the RGR Nabisco deal. Right. 
And, you know, I think that the thing that I want to talk some about the deal, but I think what really matters and what I want people to take away is that it was your relationships that allowed that deal to happen. Right. You know, the only reason you knew about it was because you were having breakfast with a former colleague who was working at KKR. Right. And the only reason you, able to, you were able to execute it is because you were still highly respected both by the partners at KKR and then you had a great relationship with Mike. Yeah, KKR had never sold a portfolio company for anything other than cash. And ConAgra was, the Beatrice deal was a big deal at the time. Uh, it was, you know, three and a half billion or something like that. And ConAgra at that point in its development wasn't big enough to be able to pay all cash. And so I had to persuade KKR to take back uh, convertible preferred stock. And they'd never done that before. And, but I said, you know, I showed, I explained about Mike. I showed them what he had done with ConAgra. They met him. They did it. And in less than a year, they doubled their money on that stock and sold it. And so it turned out to be a very success, successful deal for them and for ConAgra. And there was, I think you mentioned the reason that Beatrice hadn't been sold previously was there was a, a complicated tax issue with the company. Yes. Was that something when, when you orchestrated this deal, you knew what the solution was? Or was that something that you were just confident Mike would be able to figure out? Neither. Okay. The, uh, the solution was if you wanted... Beatrice was a collection of, of, of brands at that point. Uh, some of the other parts of the business had been sold off, but these were really valuable consumer brands. And the only way to deal with the tax problem was to take the risk and uh, that it wouldn't become a problem. It wasn't necessarily going to be a problem, but if somehow it was challenged by the IRS, uh, you know, there, there could be, it could, it could be financially significant enough to, you know, depreciate the value of the deal. I was, so I had no idea whether Mike and his guys would be able to go through that and decide they wanted to take the risk, but I wanted to find out. And the only way you could find out was to have KKR say, all right, you know, we know you guys and you'll do this right. We'll give you a chance to look through it because we'd like to sell the company. And we'll give you a chance to look through it and see if something you could do. And uh, so Mike did and uh, his, his uh, the guy who was his uh, chief financial officer who had come from uh, the outside accounting firm that, uh, that took care of ConAgra was very, very creative and he wasn't afraid and he determined that they could they could do it. He, he determined that if they bought the businesses, they could manage it in such a way that it wasn't going to be a problem. And it turned out he was right. And so they bought it. And, I mean, I think that that's just, it, it's a good example of a confluence of both you taking a risk, being creative, and then the relationships that matter coming together to making being able to make a deal happen yeah i never really had a risk in that one because first of all it's a private deal between kkr and conagra it wasn't a takeover it wasn't in the public it wasn't like texaco or gillette or you you know the other ones uh and i didn't know whether there was a solution i didn't know whether 
the, the accountants and the tax experts would really be able to get comfortable. And if they didn't, they didn't. And uh, there was no harm done. KKR was happy to have people they were friendly with take a confidential look. And I was happy to have, you know, give Mike the chance to, to buy uh, some very attractive brands that he otherwise would never be able to acquire. So it was just, as you said at the beginning, it was a confluence of really good relationships that made the possibility a possibility. And you ran your company for over 20 years. Almost 25. Almost 25, yeah. extremely successfully. Yeah. Um, you know, as you look back at, you know, all those decisions on you didn't know rocking chair theory, thinking late in life, if I don't do this, I'll always wonder if I could have. Yeah. Looking back after having run your own business for 25 years, how do you feel about it? Almost 25 years. How do you feel about it now? I feel good about it. I feel it was, I feel that I maximized the whole experience of having a business career that I was lucky because I enjoyed it all. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an achievement. When, when you're coming out of business school, you, you, that should be a, that should be a, uh, a goal. You know, you want to you want to be in business, government, uh, not for profit, social work, whatever it is, you want to enjoy it. You know, that, it's just logic. Why would you want to do something that you hated? But you know, so many people find themselves in that position where they have something that doesn't interest them or they don't like, but they have to keep doing it because they have a mortgage, they got two and a half kids, they got this and that. And they get boxed in. So the the uh, uh, the gift of having you know a career, no matter what it is, that motivates you and 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 kindles uh, satisfaction as you go along is a tremendous gift. And so I benefited from that in doing the different things I did along the way. And. and and so kind of looking back over your career, you know, your North Star being the military service that really formed you. Yeah. Um, and you talk about the three lessons you learned, you know, never lie to the troops, troops eat first, and um, you leave no man behind. Right. And those, lead by example. Lead by example. Yeah. Those being kind of the guiding principles you then use through your professional career on Wall Street as Absolute, well. Absolutely. And you did this while managing to raise, you know, six great kids who have all done extremely well in the world and pursued excellence in their own ways. Um, any advice on how to balance those things? Cause you know, everybody says everybody that we've, I've ever had come in as a guest to business school. When people ask them the worth work life balance question, the answer is always, there is no balance. You just have to find a way to integrate the two, but would love to hear kind of what your perspective is on that. Having done it successfully. Well, the work-life balance is tough. Um, one of my one of my children, not children, he's, he'll be thirty-seven in uh, October. Is in London. He's got a really successful career. He's got two little boys. He's got a great wife, and she's got a successful career uh, with a fantastic company. And and she wants to have a career. So to balance all that stuff, when I watch them and what they do is, you know, really tough. Uh, but 
they're doing it. They're, they seem to be very happy. They got two great kids and really good careers. And so you, you know, you find a way of, of doing it. Uh, I think one thing that I learned and uh, one decision I made was that even though I was lucky enough to be successful financially, I gave money to the universities and to other charities, but I didn't, give, I didn't give money to my kids. I told them, I said, I will, I said, I will, I will finance your education to the extent you wish, wherever you want to go, as long as you pursue excellence. And you can do it as much as you want, but you have to go and you have to, you have to show that you've pursued excellence. You have to, you have, to have outstanding grades. And all of them, except the one in London, have graduate degrees and done it. And like I say, knock on wood, they're all independent, self-sufficient people, you know, which is not easy to do, uh, particularly if you have six of them. Um, so that's, what, that's a piece of advice I would give to people if they've been lucky enough to be successful at a young age and they have money. Don't worry about giving trust funds to your kids. That's not what's going to motivate them. That's going to demotivate them, you know. But give them that education. Education is the key, you know. You 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 go to Northwestern. You go to a good school. It's going to give you an edge, you know. It's pe people are going to respect that. And uh, I've always been straightforward with my kids. The same way my you know my North Star. I've always told them where they stood. Uh, if they were out of line, I said, "Here's what you got to do." You know, or here's what I'll do, and that seems to have worked well for me. I think one last question I'd love to ask as as we wrap up is, what are the things when you look at people, and you're assessing someone's talent, someone's capability, um, somebody's potential? What are the the things you look for, uh, and how do you evaluate people? As someone who's been at you know the top of the world in finance, um, I'm sure you've developed a, a very keen sense of character and potential. Okay, that's a very good question, particularly to to wrap up on. First, I'll tell you what I think is kind of an amazing story. So, uh, at Morgan Stanley, the resumes that come in are astounding the accomplishments of the people. So there was a resume came in, a man. He'd gone to, I forget where he went to college. It was, you know, Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. And then he got a, a JD MBA from Harvard and Stanford, a joint degree from both of them. So he would spend some time at Harvard, either taking law courses or business courses, same thing at Stanford, and at the end, he would, he would have a JD MBA from both Harvard and Stanford. I thought that was pretty amazing. Evidently, that's possible, but rare. Everything on this guy's resume was, was so outstanding. You know, everything was perfect. Every score, I'm sure he had 800 on both parts of the SAT, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, he got hired. He didn't make it uh, a year. He just, he, he was good at all that stuff that was on his resume. 
but he he just could not function, you know, in the Morgan Stanley environment. So my point there is you never know. You never know. So when, when you say, what what do I look for or what did I consider important, you know, you look, uh, you look for achievement, I think, first of all. Uh, part of achievement in, in our minds, obviously, is military service. What did you do? You're in the military. What did you do while you were there? What were your experiences? And then part of them is achievement, uh, whether it's in athletics or some other endeavor, whatever, or endeavors. Uh, and then, of course, you know, your, your, your skill and uh, how well you did at school. So you make the best evaluation you can, but my point is you'd never know until the people is there and the, people, the, the person is there and you've put him into the work environment and you see how, how his functionality matches up. And it's the same way uh, when I have made venture capital investments, and I made a lot of them. When, uh, when Glacier and Company was going, we had a stream of people that would come by they knew, you know, what we did. I think they, the firm had a very good reputation, and they knew we were interested in investing. And if I liked the person, if I, if I was able to size up the person the way I just described to you, and I thought the business idea sounded sensible, I would usually invest because there was no point in going any further. You couldn't analyze it. You know, you can't. And... Uh, you know, I read an article uh, this morning about a firm called Tiger Global, which is an incredibly successful uh, tech uh, fund that's been around a long time. It's got about $40 billion of assets. And that's the way they invest. They, they make a lot of investments in small tech companies, figuring that the law of averages is going to work for them and the winners are going to be huge. And it's the same way of hiring people. You know, you're, one of the reasons that I think I was lucky is that I, I worked for a client of Lehman, and the client could tell them that I was functional, you know, in the job. But most of the time, you don't have that. You know, maybe the, maybe the people do various things. They might have a summer job along the way, or maybe they went and worked in Africa on some project. So most of the time, you have to just use your instinct and say, okay, these are good credentials and we'll take a chance. And that's life. You know, you have to be aggressive enough to be comfortable with that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Well, it's been a pleasure. You're a tremendous uh, narrator and guide on this. And, uh,